This is Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, Arctic analyst Marisol Maddox on security, governance, cooperation, and institutions in the Arctic region. It's important to note that we have better maps of the moon than we have of the ocean, and the Arctic especially is extremely under-mapped. You know, one of the major concerns we have is about potential Chinese submarine activity in the Arctic. Basically, the Arctic Council is now on pause. This would be difficult, you know, regardless of who is chair of the Arctic Council, but it also happens to be taking place during Russia's chairmanship. Marisol, welcome to Chatter. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Bet you are our first, uh, and maybe our last, but I hope not, definitely our first senior Arctic analyst on the podcast. How does one become a senior Arctic analyst? Yes, so that is a good question. This was not a position before I was at the Wilson Center's Polar Institute. Um, The Polar Institute is actually fairly young. It's only about five years old, but it has been built up remarkably quickly because Mike Sfrega, the director, just was so well connected with the Arctic community um, that it's really been able to evolve very quickly to become the premier place in the United States for Arctic policy discussion. So I became a senior Arctic analyst through an unusual route. Um, I, it's not a super straightforward path that, that brought me here. It was really working closer to the land. Uh, my undergrad studies were in, uh, environmental studies and studying different ecosystems I worked on a bunch of farms and ranches and spent several years living in Montana, which I absolutely fell in love with. I worked at Glacier National Park, and that was my first real exposure to the cryosphere and really palpable climate change because of the ways that the glaciers have changed so astonishingly within recent years. And it was really because of working closely to the land where you start to notice these changes faster than if you're not as close to the land. I started thinking about, you know, just the way that things are changing. What does that mean for the way that we think about homeland security at the most basic foundation, including things like food security, water security, and certain assumptions that we have about those supply chains and and that access And that was what started me thinking about just the way that the security community, whether it's national security or homeland security, international security, just the way that we think about the concept of security and the ways that things like, um, you know, the the degradation of the biosphere and, and of ecological degradation and biodiversity loss and climate change, accelerating climate change, how are these things going to be 
impacting the future? And are we framing the way that we think about security in a way that is preparing us well for the challenges that we will be facing in the future? Did you have any other travel experiences growing up that either exposed you to the far north or to diverse climactic regions that that may have sparked that interest that grew over time through your studies? I also did some work in undergrad on tropical ecology, which may not seem like there are uh, similarities, but actually, if you go up into some of the more alpine environments in uh, Costa Rica, for instance, Mm -hmm. it, it is really interesting to just learn about how species live on mountains and the ways that certain species that are endemic to places where they don't exist anywhere else and the way that climate change is changing the habitats. And so it's making them move further north or further up the mountain. And Mm -hmm. then eventually they run out of mountain Mm -hmm. to move up further on. And so I think that that kind of framework applies, but I really didn't have exposure to the actual Arctic really before becoming very interested in it intellectually. And I think that was also a part of the the political environment at the time that was mm-hmm. also driving my interest in the region. It does seem like, a, and, and maybe I shouldn't be surprised by this because I think it's going to become much more common now, but the, the, the shift from environmental ecological studies as an undergrad to a, a traditional master's in international security maybe at the time you did it, uh, a bit of a jump because people have you as a role model for doing it now, but you didn't have a lot of people who who combined those two things coming in. Yeah, it absolutely is not a well-worn path or even a path at all. I was pretty much bushwhacking. Yeah. I studied permaculture design, uh-huh. which is basically just a very deliberate framework for systems thinking and understanding it, it's so it's really used for traditionally landscape design um, and and food system cultivation but there's ways of using the design framework which is very deliberate and it's very much about understanding your goals in a very deliberate way so there's a whole process before you even know what you're trying to achieve, you're kind of making sure that what what you're trying to achieve isn't a tool for achieving something else, but actually what you want to achieve. And really a deliberate process for understanding all of the factors that impact your ability to achieve that goal. And so you really take a step back and instead of jumping to certain assumptions or kind of how you want to think about Uh, what you want to focus on for achieving a goal, you really take a step back and try to just understand what are all of the factors, including what you wouldn't necessarily understand is impacting your goal. And that could even be something um, for how that translates to like, you know, a sociopolitical scenario is something like, oh, there's a pandemic and we want to have our population be vaccinated now that we have this vaccine. And so part of 
you know, the, the landscape that you need to account for is human behavior and the factors that might make some people have vaccine hesitancy. So it was really through this very deliberate design process that I started thinking more about, you know, just the way I was really intrigued by the way that we, we conceive of security and especially in the post 9-11 environment where we're very focused on counterterrorism and for obviously for, you know, for good reason. My argument was basically that we can do that and we can also understand that the risk factors that, that bear upon our ability to be secure and prosperous as a nation are changing. Mm-hmm. And we need to be able to do both. And in fact, there are links between terrorism and accelerating climate change. And we need to understand how you know, recruitment may be impacted or how vulnerable populations may become more susceptible to recruitment. Um, so, so these are just things that I think are really important to be accounting for within the larger assessment of the threat environment and what it means to be properly prepared. Absolutely. So take us that final step. What put the icing of the Arctic on this cake? So because the Arctic is changing, at that time, it was two times faster than the global rate of change, but now it's three or more. (laughs) Um, So because it was such an obvious place where climate change was happening, manifesting so rapidly and is really a you know, a harbinger of what's to come for the lower latitudes, it was a place where I could focus, where I could just really not have to deal with any of the politicization of climate. I, my approach was that I either wanted to look at financial risk and climate change because of how pragmatic insurance and reinsurance companies are and these massive asset management firms like uh, BlackRock, for instance, they're so pragmatic that you can really avoid any of the politicization. Or I wanted to focus on, on the security side because the Pentagon is so pragmatic and the intelligence community. And so that was really the way that I just, I felt much more... Uh, like the security path was what was really interesting to me. And so I decided to focus on on the Arctic, you know, because of the, the changes that were occurring. And I'm also really interested in Russia. I started studying Russian language and just thought all of the countries in the Arctic were really interesting. And, you know, the history is fascinating. So it was kind of a combination of, of all of those things that made me want to learn more about the Arctic. And so I really studied a lot about it on my own before going to grad school because there weren't like Arctic classes or even a climate security class until my actually my last semester of grad school. They had the first climate security class, which was amazing. But That's either yeah, exceptionally good timing I'm, or exceptionally bad timing. I'm not sure which. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but basically... So I decided I want to go to grad school. I want to combine my background with the security field. And I really wanted to get my master's in a security program because I wanted to learn 
from the very foundational approach, you know, how does the security community think and, and what are the philosophies and the doctrine and these ideas that really form the foundation for the way that they conceive of the concept of security and what's the language that's used because a a big part of this of bringing these two seemingly disparate fields together was about bridging language and finding ways to communicate. And I, so basically I spoke with a a couple of schools to try to make sure I'd find a, a school that would support me bringing the climate element in. And Ellen Lapson at George Mason was just incredibly supportive. And because of her practitioner background, um, working you know, on the National Intelligence, Intelligence Council, she just really understood how important this was and how underappreciated the climate security risks were. And so she was very, very supportive. And so that's why I did that program. And it was incredibly useful. Well, that that is an exceptionally good answer on both fronts. Let's just do a very brief overview before we get to some of these geopolitical and security issues that you look at the most, kind of the underlying factors that make Arctic region, the Arctic region overall, the the real growing geopolitical and human security domain on the whole globe. So you already mentioned that the Arctic is warming roughly three times faster than, than other areas. Uh, we also have the the related melting of the ice sheets. We have the permafrost issue, uh, the exposure of access to oil and gas and minerals. Hit each one of those briefly, if you can, just to lay the foundation of why it is that we're having not just great power, but all kinds of countries' interest in the Arctic that wasn't there a few decades ago. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the polar ice cap is indeed shrinking and thinning. Um, So what that is doing is basically um, exposing, there's a a term called Arctic amplification, which is partially why the Arctic is changing so much faster than the rest of the world. And that's because as the polar ice cap shrinks and thins, the dark water that's underneath that's exposed absorbs more of the heat from the sun. And so that further uh, adds to melting. So that's um, opening up new shipping routes. Um, You hear a lot of very flowery language from Russia about the Northern Sea Route being the new Suez of the North, which is not the case because there are certain constraints there. in terms of the actual depth and width at certain straits uh, along that route. But still, it is an area where it cuts down the the shipping time between Europe and Asia by a couple weeks. And so that is very appealing as a prospect for shipping companies, especially Asia. China is very interested in that, for instance. And then the Northwest Passage is becoming a bit more accessible as well um, above Canada. And there's eventually going to be a transpolar route, which will, you know, in, I guess, maybe 15 or 20 years, the polar ice cap is supposed to just seasonally 
completely disappear. Mm -hmm. And that will lead to a a very different route. Um, There are, like you said, a lot of resources in the Arctic, including oil, gas, minerals, which are becoming much more interesting in the very recent years with a big push towards decarbonization. Mm-hmm. And the, there's um, a lot of new activity that is possible as the region opens up. So in, in addition to shipping, there is more interest in tourism So certain cruise ships are going up into the Arctic further than they were before and earlier and later into the season than was possible before. And for instance, we have one um, expeditionary cruise operator who is going up there next month to Svalbard, and that is the earliest they've ever gone in in April. So that's, you know, definitely a big change. And, and then not, and not without risk, right? Because yes, the the sea ice is, or it's it's receding earlier and all of that, but that there still is a risk to going that early in the season. Yes, there is. So while the trend is for the region to become more accessible over time, it is more unpredictable than ever. And we saw that just this past fall in October along the Northern Sea Route, there was, you know, a quote unquote early freeze up. I mean, it's the Arctic, hello, but it caught people off guard. And there were over a dozen ships that got stuck. And Russia did not have many icebreakers available to go carve a path out of the ice for these ships. And so they were stuck for literally for months. And that that was a big eye opener to these shipping companies mm-hmm. that have really been taking Russia more at their word in terms of how accessible the region is. And, and it's actually, I would say, riskier now because previously, because of how severe the conditions were in a very dependable way, only extremely uh, people who are very used to working and operating in those conditions would even attempt to go up there. And now because of this perception that it's opening, there's more interest. And so it actually becomes riskier when people who maybe don't have as much operational experience Mm. are then entering the region and then sometimes caught off guard. Sounds like a, a light parallel to the Mount Everest (laughs) experience of, the number of expeditions going up and up and up to the point where the threshold for entry seems lower. And yet you seem to have a lot of people having problems because the mountain doesn't care, right? <laughs> the, the, the mountain is still going to present the same harsh conditions. But on the the shipping and transport issue, I'm, I'm fascinated by this because it affects both air and ocean transport routes because you've got, I think I heard it was Anchorage's airport is actually booming because of the, uh, the, the traffic flying by air that feels that it's, it's more comfortable. And now they understand the routes better. Uh, also Iceland and Finland growing as air hubs because of the, the Northern transits. And then the major shipping companies, almost all of them looking at it and getting interest from countries as far afield as India and the United Arab Emirates, because of the benefits of a possible 
northern route. The the thing that I hadn't heard much about that you mentioned is the issue of the depth and the width of some of the straits and some of these areas that that many of these shipping lines would be looking to use. Where where are those choke points? Yeah. So um, one example is through the Laptev Strait, um, and basically. What what I'm saying with that is that some of these really large cargo ships like the Ever Given, which got stuck in the Suez, that would not physically be able to mm-hmm. fit a- along the Northern Sea Route. So they can take some of the, the cargo ships that carry that are smaller and that mm-hmm you know, still, you know, carry significant cargo, but for this, um, you know, this, this model of, you know, or or things arriving just on time where there are these massive cargo ships, those just aren't viable for, for that route. Interesting. And, and also it's about, what about the straight polar route? What about China going, you know, right up and across Bering Strait over Canada to something like Iceland and, um, and transshipping from Iceland. So it's very speculative at this point. Yeah. It's important to note that we have better maps of the moon than we have of the ocean and the Arctic especially is extremely under mapped. So there's a lot of effort underway now to, um, to get that bathymetry and to really understand what the the seafloor looks like because it's not homogenous, right? There's a lot of variability in terms of where there may be ridges or places where it becomes shallow and other places where it's, you know, extremely deep, but there's a lot of variability. And so right now the transpolar route is, is just speculative and there needs to be more mapping and kind of understanding what's going on, but Mm -hmm. we're going to have a lot of other issues going on in the world if we're at a point where there is a viable transpolar route. So that brings up a whole bunch of other questions. Now, I know the the melting of the the ice and the ice sheet in Greenland, as well as Antarctic ice, obviously that's an issue for global sea levels. Got it. Um, But on the Greenland side in particular, it really raises another issue, which is the uh, access to natural resources and the possibility of an expansion of what we're already seeing, which is everybody suddenly getting really interested from the Chinese to Americans in what access do we have to what areas of Greenland because of what we already know is there and what we suspect might be there. Yes, Greenland is gaining prominence for a, a lot of different reasons. And there, yeah, there are a lot of interesting industries that are popping up. Greenland has beautiful rubies, for instance. They also have looked at potentially contributing to the global sand market because there is a currently a, a global sand shortage. Um, there has been a lot of interest from certain Chinese and Australian companies and others in in certain projects in Greenland. Their election last April was very heavily um, 
was very heavily influenced by one particular project in the south of Greenland where there were some uranium deposits that the Greenlanders were concerned could contaminate the local environment and could impact their food security and water security. And so this election was, you know, a referendum on certain types of projects and really made clear that Greenland, as they say, is for business, is open for business, but is not for sale. And they really want to make sure that the way that they are economically developing is conducive to Greenlandic longevity and that they're not going to be compromising their food and water security and traditional practices because it is majority indigenous in their desire to engage more in these global markets. And so they're really being, you know, very particular about the types of projects they engage in. And with this one in particular, China is not getting the contract for this particular mine. And it's, and it's largely because of this, this proximity to, um, you know, to this uranium deposit and the concerns around that. It's an interesting dilemma for the, the Greenlanders, especially the ones who are interested in expanding the autonomy and self-governance that they have from Denmark and moving to independence. Because on the one hand, you to, to get that, you have to realize that they still rely so much on the Danish subsidies. On the other hand, in order to relieve yourself of needing the Danish subsidies, you probably need a lot of those big commercial enterprises and long-term leases, which violate some of their sense of uh, environmentalism and protecting the land. So it seems like it, it creates a real, a real problem for the for the actual population in Greenland to to weigh that, I know other populations have in other places, but it's a it's an issue where it's not going to get any easier over the next few years to resolve that dilemma. Yeah, well, I think because this government is you know fairly new, the new one just came in 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 April twenty twenty one, so they are you know kind of building this foundation of you know, what are the acceptable business practices? And I think they will have a lot of opportunities. It just needs to be very clearly communicated to potential investors so that there's not that uncertainty about what it would, you know, what it would mean to pursue, you know, a certain deposit that is they're interested in mining and, and just having that um, you know, like regulatory consistency is really important and making sure that if you're putting this investment in that you will have a high likelihood of being able to have access to the resources. Um, but, you know, they're just wanting to do it in a really careful and ethical way. And I think there is a way to balance it. And I, I really commend Greenland for doing something that's not easy. And while it's not in line with the short-term profit model that is very common around the world, I think what they are doing is setting themselves up for for being able to have business that is not negatively impacting the environment and having that that balance, which is not easy, but I think serves their long-term interests. 
There's so many issues wrapped up here um, that even in an extended conversation, we won't have have time to get to, but I don't, I don't want people to think we're minimizing them. Uh, I'm, we're not going to dwell on a lot of permafrost and other environmental issues that are serious and the potential pathogens, right. That come from the, the defrosting there, but let's move on to issues you've looked at pretty carefully, which are the governance issues in the Arctic. Uh, on the one hand, you've got legal regimes and on the other hand, you've got international cooperation and discussions and forums for this. So on the legal side, one of the most, for me, one of the most boring parts of international law has always been the law of the sea, just not interesting, but it is absolutely vital for so many of these issues up in the far north. So if you could talk a little bit about the law of the sea and the other treaties and and compacts that actually play a role here and, and how it is that they don't do enough and we have to have these discussion forums that we'll get to in a moment because of the ambiguities or the conflicts set up by these various legal regimes. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, law of the sea is actually fascinating in the Arctic, in my opinion. Um, so the U.S. obviously is not, uh, you know, we have not signed on to law of the sea treaty, but we view it as customary inter- international law. and we are currently pursuing um, the the scientific research that is needed for us to submit a claim for our extended continental shelf in the Arctic. Um, So basically, I really push back against the narrative about the race for the resources in the Arctic, because many of those resources are it's very clear which countries have control over them and Russia as a massive arctic country naturally under international law has huge claims in the arctic and so it's actually been in their interest to abide by international law because of how much they have to gain from it right so there's a a smaller high seas portion of, of the arctic And recently, there was a Central Arctic Ocean fisheries agreement that came into force. Um, And this is a treaty that prohibits any fishing in the Central Arctic Ocean for 16 years. And then uh, they will, so that what they're looking at is, is there the, the possibility for a sustainably managed commercial fishery to open up in this region. Mm. There's a lot of questions because of the depths involved and just all sorts of factors like cold water acidifies faster than warmer water. So there's issues around acidification and how that impacts creatures that have shells. So like Mm. crabs, for instance. Sure. Um, but also lots of new predator-prey dynamics because of fish that are migrating towards the polar regions from the mid-latitudes. And so they'll, they'll take 16 years to do research, understand you know, how the ecosystems are changing, could there be a fishery, and then there's supposed to be a management body that would form to facilitate the sustainable harvesting of this fish. And so the U.S. is a signatory. Russia is 
uh, China is, the mm -hmm. European Union, South Korea. So all these major fishing entities are a party to this. And this is really an example of uh, an international legal regime that was put into place before there was a problem because it was anticipating that there is interest in th these fish that are in the region and we want to prevent yeah. a tragedy of the commons kind of scenario. That's and an amazing so, that's an amazing thing that in a time of the last I'll just say the last 5 years of growing geopolitical tension between just Russia, China and and uh the United States that we have an example of a successful negotiation and treaty in an area that that could have been one of the harder uh, ones to cooperate on. Um, I think we'll probably balance that with with some other discussion later about some other institutions that that aren't as perhaps um, positive for the future. But in this case, that's a good development, right? That shows that it can be done. It is, yeah. And this is another example of engaging with China in a way that is hoping to create a common set of rules that have been agreed upon mm -hmm. to develop a, a common code of conduct that is for the best, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And that serves everyone's interests. And that we know that China is interested in these fish and it is, you know, the high seas portion, so it doesn't fall under any particular nation's jurisdiction, but we want it to be well managed and we want it to not be over harvested as so much of the world's ocean has been. And so this is a way of engaging these major fisheries countries in a way that is, you know, really conducive to having sustainable management of the resources. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about one other law that is fascinating, perhaps one of the most interesting on the planet, which is the Svalbard Treaty of 1920. So it is uh, very unusual. Um, it allows for free and equal access to, to the region. There is a question about the extent of Norway's claims um, around uh, regarding the EEZ around Svalbard, and that has been an area of contention between Norway and Russia. But fundamentally, the, the treaty the treaty does say Norway has full sovereignty over the islands, with with a few asterisks, right on on the nature of activities and how they can be regulated. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it, the treaty was, was, as you mentioned, signed in 1920, and the Law of the Sea was signed in the 1980s. And so th at the time, there wasn't this, you know, the rules around the EEZ, for instance. Um, but so basically, Svalbard is considered Norwegian territory, but part of this treaty, as you mentioned, is that um, with this this free and equal access that anybody can go there. You don't need a visa. Well, moving on from the legal regimes then, I'm fascinated by the discussion forums, if you will, or the the overlapping 
organizations that have developed uh, bilateral relationships, of course, but also different councils to talk about issues here. They're not strictly based on international law, but they're opportunities to talk about things that are of common concern. Uh, Obviously, there's a Nordic Council, which has Arctic interests. And this is my intersection with Arctic governance issues because I went to Reykjavik in August 2019 and was there for the Nordic Council Ministerial where Angela Merkel from Germany showed up uh, for the first time in Iceland to attend. Now, I make that sound like I was there convening with the leaders. I wasn't. I was just there as a tourist, but was literally sitting out uh, having a meal. And all of a sudden, I look up and Angela Merkel is right there, just standing next to me and smiling. And I thought, okay, this is odd. Um, not, Not what I expected to see. So there's the Nordic Council, which is a limited grouping. But then there's the Arctic Council which was formed sometime in the 1990s, but you can tell us about it. What, what is the Arctic Council? Who is in it? And what have its goals been since its founding? Sure. Yeah, so the Arctic Council um, was formed in 1996 from the Ottawa Declaration. And basically um, what it does is it brings together the eight Arctic countries. So you know, the Arctic is a sea surrounded by, or an ocean surrounded by countries, complete opposite of Antarctica. And the eight Arctic countries are Canada, the United States, Russia, Iceland, Denmark because of Greenland, Norway, Sweden, and Finland. And basically what the Arctic Council is focused on is areas of mutual interest. And so it explicitly prohibits any type of military uh, matters being discussed. And the purpose of that is to just keep anything out that may compromise the ability to, to continue to collaborate on these areas of mutual interest. And so those things are primarily around sustainable development with the shared interest in being able to develop the economies in the northern parts of these countries, and also in scientific research and understanding, um, you know, with climate change, for instance, just being able to cooperate on on research to understand what these changes are. They're happening incredibly fast, and what do they mean, and how can we help the Arctic communities and the people of the Arctic to build resilience in the face of this? And there's also two um, bodies that are independent from the Arctic Council that are also um, really important. And those are the the Arctic Coast Guard Forum, which helps to build interoperability between the Coast Guards or equivalent organizations of the Arctic countries so that we're able to overcome the tyranny of distance that really plagues the region. if there is some type of incident to be able to respond in a timely way. And also the Arctic Economic Council, which is focused on bringing the business community from around the world um, into the Arctic to be able to help to facilitate this economic development in a sustainable way. And how have those from the Arctic Council to the Coast Guard grouping and the, the Economic Forum uh, accepting 
the last few weeks. So let's just take this up through, let's say, the end of 2021. How have these organizations done overall? Have have they avoided the worst of politics and military confrontation issues and been able to make some progress on these issues? Yeah. So like you said, we'll, we'll stay before these past few weeks. Um, the working groups of the Arctic Council are really the like the working horses of that organization. So they bring together people from the different Arctic nations the, and experts on certain topics to help to focus on certain priorities that have been identified by the current chair. And so the chair of the Arctic Council just it goes from one country to the next. Um, it's all you know laid out in a very clear way. It's consensus based. Um, so everything has to be agreed upon, including the agenda for the chair where they articulate their priorities. You know, they can't just put anything they want in there. It has to be something that all of the nations agree to. And so that is also really helpful for keeping it within a scope of mutual interest. So some important things that they've been able to work on through the Arctic Council and these working groups are, um, you know, understanding how plastic pollution is impacting the, the Arctic marine environment how biodiversity is being impacted by different factors. Um, the, the EPPR working group is uh, the Emergency Prevention Preparedness and Response. And so that's really also focusing on the ability for first responders to be able to first, you know, like, this, like the group says, you know, it's about preventing emergencies, but also being more prepared for them and being able to respond in a more effective way. And so even something like if there was an oil spill in the Arctic, yeah. you know, it's very difficult to recover that oil in a normal circumstance where you don't have ice layer mm -hmm. to deal with. But, you know, what does it look like when you are trying to map the extent of the ice and of the oil and it's under ice? Yeah. So, yeah. so that's also, you know, something that they would work on. Mm -hmm. And then the Sustainable Development Working Group, they're really focused on um, building resilience and, and building um, resilience that enables for long-term sustainable development, mm -hmm. right? And so something like looking at the role of permafrost and how that undermines infrastructure that's depended upon for supply chains and for having the, the resources that support presence in the region, these are all things that, that get incorporated through working groups. The Coast Guard cooperation on things like oil spills is, is one of those areas where it sounds great on, on paper, and it sounds like there's been some real progress, um, I should say, not on the ground, but on the water. And yet it can't help but intersect with some of those bigger security issues, because I'm thinking here of the icebreakers. And you can tell me if this is dated information, but the information I remember hearing about a while back was Russia. Russia has some good icebreakers and a few of them. Um, the United States, not so much. And there comes an issue for the 
cooperation on the seas when you you need to be able to get whether it's rescue ships or you need to be able to clear ice for some potential contingency. And if you have to rely on Russian icebreakers to do it, but they see the Russian icebreakers as a military asset almost as much as a cooperative international asset, you end up you end up having an uncomfortable friction between this cooperative grouping and the national security thinking of the leadership. So the US Coast Guard definitely does not have a lot of icebreakers right now. We have one that is designated for the Arctic and that is Healy. And the other icebreaker, Polar Star, is primarily in Antarctica. However, during COVID, we, there were exceptional circumstances that actually did see Polar Star go to the Arctic. But the Coast Guard presence really is, it's not like Chinese Coast Guard vessels, which are technically auxiliary vessels because of how armed they are, where they no longer even qualify as being Coast Guard. Um, you know, that's not the case with our, our Whitehalls, you know there's a, a very different perception of them and it is a you know a little complex with russia because uh, it's actually their fsb that uh is in of the, course the, it the is. arctic coast guard forum <laughs> that just that just makes everything better doesn't it yeah so that definitely makes it um you know i'm sure adds some dimension to it however this is not an area where it's nice to cooperate. It's an area where we need to cooperate. And so whether it's being able to respond to, you know, some type of cruise ship incident, um, or there's a major oil spill, we really need to be able to work together because of how much of a delay there is in getting our response assets to this scenario. And so that the need to cooperate has really overridden any of the other concerns Mm -hmm. and has enabled really good cooperation. And, and even just, I mean, among the Arctic seven, um, which is, you know, the Arctic countries, not including Russia, Mm -hmm. um, just knowing what each other has who are the points of contact within yeah. the various bureaucratic structures who are, you know, who need to talk to, you know, their counterpart in another country, mm-hmm. making those connections very clear so that you're minimizing any lag time in the response is incredibly important. And all that's all the work that needs to be done on the front end so that you're not trying to figure that out when you're worried about trying to deploy assets to respond to something. You know, that makes sense because I can imagine a cruise ship and I, and I think I think one either did or tried to do this a few years ago to go through the Canadian islands in the Northwest Passage, uh, having an incident and requiring emergency assistance. And it's natural that the Canadian Coast Guard would 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 be there. You don't expect Russia or Iceland or Denmark to be there when you're up by Victoria Island, let's say, um, in the in the North Canadian islands. But that's not true of the whole Arctic, right? And if you're if you have a ship that goes to the high north kind of above Iceland and Greenland and is maybe going up towards Svalbard, but suddenly you get an issue where you may need quick action from whoever is closest. 
and having that like a, a Rolodex or a you know speed dial for the various Coast Guard points of contact could actually be the difference between life and death. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because of how far some of these cruise ships travel, um, there needs to be a high level of coordination. Mm-hmm. And the really big uh, cruise ship that first came into the Arctic in recent years was the Crystal Serenity. Yeah. And there was a whole process where they were very responsible in communicating to the various countries about where they were going and mm-hmm. really making sure that, um, you know, that they are well equipped to be able to handle the, the environmental conditions. Mm-hmm. And, and there are, um, you know, a couple other, uh, under the International Maritime Organization, there are a couple um, things like the Polar Code, for instance, which requires certain um, standards of vessels that will operate in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. And so they really need to meet those standards in order to safely be able to operate. Do you have any examples? What's one of those code differences that a, that a, that a ship needs going into the Arctic? Yeah. So like, for instance, being, having a certain level of um, like being ice hardened Mm. so that it's not a normal hull, right? Mm. Like the normal hull of a ship uh, can't take that um, contact mm-hmm. with with ice, and so there needs to be the certain ability, a bare minimum of, of ability to be in an ice environment. Should there be an, an overnight ice up where it's not likely to be impacted in a way that could lead right. to a really serious search and rescue incident? That's fascinating to me. I can't I can't imagine the Crystal Serenity was built with that in mind. And that it would be easy to to retrofit it or somehow get some kind of what uh, outer hull put onto it for northern trips. That's that seems like a a big barrier to entry for a lot of large vessels. Yeah, um, I think some of it is around the time of year as well. So mm, that's I'm not totally sure of the yeah, specifics of what Crystal Serenity did. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, you've made it sound like the Arctic Council and these these other organizations have been able to accomplish some things since the 1990s and provide a nice forum that is apart from international politics and, you know, security challenges. So it's really nice that, you know, no member of the Arctic Council, say, would do something like invade a neighboring country and, you know, jeopardize all of this cooperation. Um, oops, <laughs> what, what, what has happened to the Arctic council since Russia invaded Ukraine? Yeah. So basically the Arctic council is now on pause because this would be difficult, you know, regardless of who is chair of the Arctic council, but it also happens to be taking place during Russia's chairmanship. So Mm. one of the benefits of being chair is that you get to host a ton of events Mm -hmm. in your country. And at the end of the two-year chairmanship, the secretaries of state, you know, their equivalent come, uh, you know, foreign ministers will come to that country 
for this high level ministerial mm -hmm. and the passing of the gavel to the next country that will take over the chairmanship. Mm. And so clearly that's not happening. Um, the whole thing is on pause right now, including all of the working group activity. And right now the discussion that's happening, um, you know, from the U.S. point of view, from with our State Department, and you know, in a highly coordinated way, which I think is really fantastic, is looking at "quote unquote" modalities for mm -hmm. continuing some of the work that we really need to take place. Um, right. To be able to do that in a way that is not appeasing Russia in any way, and that explicitly is denying them of this soft power political platform mm -hmm. that they would get with the ministerial. Yeah. This is a really tough one. I know other international organizations deal with the same thing, but for the Arctic Council, it's it's tough because the Arctic Council was so explicitly founded to try to leave politics aside and realize that that this is a common issue. And it's something that has helped to bring Russia in on issues that maybe they were inclined not to cooperate on. So on the one hand, it's hard to just continue business as usual, given the ethics of the situation. But if you freeze Russia out, the, the long-term damage to interests in the Arctic could, could be damaged as well by perhaps pushing Russia to seek out alternative cooperative agreements with countries like China that might not have the same interests in mind as the rest of the Arctic Council member states. Yeah. So while we do try to keep politics out and we have been successful in terms of, you know, 2014 with the um, annexation of Crimea, there were some challenges because th that was a violation of Ukraine sovereignty. But what we're seeing right now is just so egregious, you know, this completely unprovoked extremely brutal attack on a sovereign nation it you know the the arctic council was founded upon this agreed upon set of values and and that's you know for a, a peaceful and sustainably developed arctic and so to see one member state so clearly just choosing to violate the you know, that that foundation that allows for something like the Arctic Council to exist, that can't be overlooked. And so unfortunately, you know, just with how severe it is, this is, it, it wouldn't, if the Arctic Council didn't respond, that would absolutely be seen as appeasement by Russia. Yeah. They would not mm -hmm. respect it at all. And they would probably start to throw their weight around more in the Arctic. Right. Um, what have you heard from your contacts across the Arctic um, about this breakdown in cooperation, the fact that these meetings will not take place in the Russian North? And then I think in, in April or May was scheduled to be the uh, one of the big meetings in St. Petersburg, Russia. That obviously won't happen at this point. What are you hearing from them about what they think this will mean for actual cooperation and uh, working level progress in the Arctic? Yeah. So 
so obviously everything is frozen at least for this month and you know i'm hearing a lot of interest in trying to find ways to keep certain work going even if it maybe doesn't include russia certainly nothing would be in russia nobody's traveling to russia um, even the Arctic Economic Council, they while they are not paused, they did announce that their annual meeting was not going to be hybrid, but it was going to be only online. So just really, you know, a, a desire to not be including Russia right now. And even with some of the events that have happened very recently, and we have um, Arctic encounters coming up in April in Anchorage. Um, the Russians were disinvited from that, the Russian speakers. So there, there's a desire, there's a lot that we can do among the Arctic Seven. Um, you know, a lot of the, the work that gets contributed to working groups is actually associated with other institutions. So maybe those pieces are already funded. So they're still happening. It's just about the working groups in the Arctic Council are really about bringing it all together and helping to get all these different perspectives and different pieces of the puzzle to be able to contribute to the larger goals for the region. And so that's, you know, where there, there are discussions happening now and really trying to find a nuanced approach um, you know, and, and certainly with the many indigenous people in the Arctic, it's about 500,000 people in the Arctic are indigenous and they're more concerned about, you know, food security and being able to continue the practices that are of cultural importance to them. And because of just how extensive climate change impacts are, and certain communities that are looking to relocate because they are facing greater levels of erosion. You know, all of this is, there's still a lot of work happening. It's just not as centralized as, as some of it was before, but, but there are, there's a will to find a way to move forward. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the the large set of sanctions that have been placed against Russia in the not unanimous, but the overwhelming international consensus that things cannot go, cannot go on as normal with Russia after this invasion, obviously it's affected the Arctic council and related groups, but it also comes at a time where a couple of years ago, Russia made a, a pretty strong push related to Svalbard and making claims that it was at least implying that it was going to go ahead and start doing some activity in the area around it that Norway claimed as its as its own using the law of the sea and the exclusive economic zone. Do, do you think that it's going to affect that too, that Russia may say, well, at this point, you know, I, I dare Norway to stop us from doing something um, near Svalbard? Um, so one, I would say that so many of Russia's resources right now are engaged in Ukraine and in the Black Sea. And I don't think it's in their interest to be starting conflict in the Arctic. Um, 
so I, I don't think it would rise to the level of conflict. Do I think they will be more provocative? Yes, um, especially with Finland and Sweden now saying that they're reconsidering, um, you know, joining NATO, which I, I also don't think is high probability, but I think they want to make it clear that Russia threatening them doesn't scare them and that they will absolutely keep the option on the table because that is their sovereign right and that's exactly what they should do. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, definitely I, I am concerned about the way that Russia postures in the Arctic and even just yesterday. So March 14th was the beginning of cold response exercise, which was a, a long planned NATO article five defensive exercise that kicked off in, in Norway, in the Norwegian Arctic. And it has about 30,000 troops from about 28 different countries. And today, Russia issued like a notice to airmen nearby in the Norwegian Sea. And they were, you know, bringing up some of their naval, you know, like the biggest uh, aircraft carrier they have. And, um, you know, they definitely will posture, but that's very normal. And, but, but I am concerned that if there is some kind of accident, so even with, you know, seeing the way that Russia was bombing parts of Ukraine that were very, very close to Poland, they really bring it like right up to that line. And so that's where I am concerned because they have, there are a lot of times where there's accidents or, you know, poor training or just various circumstances that can make something not happen as exactly as it needs to be when you're being that precise and that, right. you know, going right up to the line. So in the past where we would give them the benefit of the doubt, because it's just not in their interest to be starting some kind of conflict, you know, we're taking them more at face value now and they need to be more careful. Yeah. And it, it certainly creates an atmosphere of less less certainty, more opportunity for miscalculation. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm picturing a a version of what we saw recently of India accidentally firing a missile into Pakistan, and in this environment, if one of those were to accidentally happen, it could easily be misinterpreted. But it also it also opens up some uncertainty and some opportunity for others. And we've mentioned a couple of times already China, that China declaring itself a near Arctic state, not exactly clear what that means, except that it wants to be involved in all major decisions. Does, does China use this as an opportunity to flex its own muscles in the Arctic and to push its way into various forums that it isn't already getting a seat at the table and essentially use the distraction of the world on Ukraine as a chance to assert some longer-term strategic advantage. Yeah, it's been very interesting to look at China's response to this situation with Ukraine. Um, they definitely will benefit when it comes to Russia and the Arctic, there have been, on top of the sanctions, 
many companies that had major, major investments, billions of dollars in the Russian Arctic that have pulled out. And, you know, BP is one example. They had uh, about uh, 20% stake in Rosneft and the Vostok oil project, which is this whole complex of extractive pro- um, extractive projects that Russia is you know, really seeking to commercialize. And it's not possible for China to fill all of the vacuum that has been left behind. But we see Russia signaling to India and even to South Korea before the election um, about, you know, their, their pivot towards the East basically, and being more interested in those markets. And, you know, they're interested also in the Middle East and obviously in Africa and in Latin America. So they have, they have a lot of, uh, you know, different options for certain markets, but I am very closely going to be watching, you know, the exact moves that, that China does make. And it was alarming to hear that the U.S. intelligence community was had some evidence that China was perhaps going to provide some type of military assistance to Russia. And if that is the case, I mean, that's a very bold move. And it's more bold than I would have thought because Russia, uh, sorry, China so far has been so cautious and kind of calculating in their response. And you could see them really pausing for a while and just kind of observing because obviously, you know, Russia is right now just doing something so extreme that, it, you know, it's it's not in China's interest to make some big, bold move. But they have gone from this transactional relationship just over the last few years to really being much more aligned in many different ways and not mm-hmm. only increasing cooperation within the current realms but actually expanding to to new areas and that is very concerning and it's alarming that all of the attention on china for good reason but all of the attention on china is what you just mentioned is the possibility is china going to arm Russia? Are they going to to provide weapons? And if not, join the fight, which I don't think anyone is predicting, at least help Russia substantially in the fight. And that makes all of us turn our heads and look at that when they're using their other hand to basically bail out. And I know that's an exaggeration, but to bail out some of the Russian economy, to invest in some of these Russian companies, maybe to put money in, scoop up, some of the opportunity there, along with the Indians and others, it's it's almost escaping attention that this could change some of the, the commercial structure of the Arctic for a long time. And we are all perhaps rightfully focused on the, the kinetic issues than the, the armaments, while probably billions, perhaps over time, trillions of dollars of decisions are being made quietly behind the scenes. Yeah, I agree. You absolutely have to look at both of these Mm -hmm. because they are very important. And so far, what we've been seeing is more of the capital flight from Russia, not a lot in terms of who is moving into that space. 
Um, so that's, that is an area to watch definitely, but yeah, I mean, Russia has identified their ability to realize the economic potential of the Arctic zone as a matter of national security. Mm-hmm. And it's about 20% of their GDP, but it would be more going forward. And it'll be really interesting to, to watch that space and to see who might move in, which projects they continue to try to push forward with or which ones get abandoned. Mm-hmm. But it, there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of different variables. Russia has received most of the attention, rightfully so, in the last several decades in terms of the greatest national security threat or potential national security threat to United States interests in the Arctic with things, what now, 15 years ago, I think it was, the the Russian submarine planting the flag down on the, help me out here, Lomonosov Ridge, was that right? Yeah, saying the North Pole, we have planted the flag just the way you Americans planted a flag on the moon. Um, But it sure sounds to me like with the hit Russia is taking now with its economy, which was already not a truly major world economy outside of uh, hydrocarbons, now even more pummeled. Is China the real long-term national security threat to United States interests in the Arctic? Mm, that's an interesting question. Yeah, so um, up to this point, China has not been considered a military actor in the Arctic. And Russia has been very cautious about some of the areas where they've not wanted to engage with with China. And I see that that is definitely an area that could be leveraged by China to get Russia to concede the ability to engage in certain areas where they're not comfortable, but now they're so dependent upon China, they can't afford to say no. I absolutely could see China leveraging that. And, you know, one of the major concerns we have is about, you know, potential Chinese submarine activity in the Arctic and, uh, you know, second strike capability. That's, that's very concerning. So yeah, if we start seeing, you know, joint Russian Chinese exercises in the Arctic, that's going to be very, very problematic. Finally, on the geopolitical front, before we turn to something a little more fun. You mentioned that Sweden and Finland um, have some interesting reactions to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Public opinion polls have shifted dramatically, almost reversing in numbers, in uh, at least in Finland and, and, and almost so in Sweden, on membership in NATO. And you already have the US, Canada, Iceland, Denmark, Norway, in NATO. But if Finland and Sweden also join, then the Arctic Council is, 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 is again, as Russia sees it, NATO against us. Do you think that NATO membership, although not exclusively tied to Arctic Council membership, do you think that NATO membership in, let's say, a year's time of, of Sweden and Finland 
would would further inhibit Russian cooperation in the Arctic? If Sweden and Finland join NATO, it will definitely create greater tensions with Russia because Russia is very sensitive to NATO being at its border. And it would definitely create more hostility and make it harder to cooperate in in certain areas. Um, but I guess it depends if Putin stays in power or if there is a change in, in Russian government. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's really the balance that Finland and Sweden have been so carefully navigating is, you know, living in such close proximity to Russia while being, you know, really a part of, of the West, right? And then and in terms of their value systems. So they've had to just be really cautious. And that's why they haven't joined so far, because they are trying to respect that Russia is sensitive to NATO and that's part of that assurance side mm. of the relationship. But I understand that they're also looking at the limitations to our ability to respond in Ukraine since Ukraine is not a member of NATO. And I understand both sides of why they would join and, but also why they're very cautious. And I think mm -hmm. that's up to them to decide. Yeah. Well, we end our conversations on chatter by reaching into the so-called chatter box and grabbing a random question and putting you on the spot. So let's see what the chatter box has for you. Marisol, in what country other than your own would you most like to live and why? Ooh, that's a really difficult question. <laughs> um, you only have about 196 or 97 choices. Yeah. So, okay. Um, I think it would be really interesting to live in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I've loved going to the Norwegian Arctic. So I think that would be really cool to live there for an extended period of time and just get more exposure to the culture. Mm-hmm. Now, are you talking the Norwegian Arctic like Tromso, where it's a, a, a city with many of the things you're used to? Or are you talking you're going to Svalbard and you're going to be more isolated and shooting at polar bears if you go for a walk? Uh, I don't think I would want to live on Svalbard, but I would love to visit. Um, I think Tromsø is a great area because it has that urban center and all the culture and, you know, very international, lots going on, but then very close proximity to absolutely beautiful environment and nature. Well, it has been a pleasure to talk about all things Arctic with you. Thank you for sharing with us your, your expertise and your insights and people can check out your work at the Wilson Center. Uh, Marisol, thank you. Thank you so much. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Thank you.